Welcome to the third episode of Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm a scholar of food, gender, feminist, and tech history, and the author of the book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. episode, we talked about the history of American and Canadian feminist restaurants. And in the last episode, we talked about what feminist food is. Today, we will be talking about what I like to call the feminist nexus. We will be joined by Dr. Jen Jack Giesking, the author of A Queer New York, Geographies of Lesbians, Dykes, and Queers, published by NYU Press in 2020. We will also be joined by PhD candidate Kirsten Bescherda Van Vliet, to talk about lesbian and queer music networks. One thing that I want to discuss at the outset of this episode is that you will hear me use terms such as women, lesbian, feminist, and queer women. These terms do not all mean the same thing. However, when talking about feminist activism during the 1970s and 1980s, there's a bit of complication with the use of terms. Sometimes women was used as code for lesbian. Women sometimes was spelled with a Y or with two I's, such as women, or two O's to remove the word men from it. So you have woman, like womb, woman, and woman with two O's, and women with two I's, and women with the Y. Sometimes today you will see women with an X. Some groups use this to be trans inclusive and some groups use this to be trans exclusive. I want to be explicitly clear that this podcast is explicitly trans inclusive and I will speak about transphobia and trans exclusion when it shows up in these histories. The spelling of women is not the only point that can cause confusion. The women's movement or movements is also sometimes called the feminist movement or movements. However, it should also be noted that people of all genders can be feminists, so this can cause some confusion for folks. Lesbian as a term can represent the sexual orientation of women who love or are attracted to or have sexual relationships with other women. Sometimes the term sapphic is used. However, there was this idea in certain activist circles in the 1970s that feminism was the theory and lesbianism was the practice. Sisters is another term that comes up. Sometimes it means feminist activists in solidarity with one another, and sometimes it means lesbian. There are also differences between how Black feminists and Chicana feminists and white feminist communities use the term sister. The term queer was previously used pejoratively, but then in the late 1980s and onwards, it was reclaimed. While saying queer women to talk about people in the past could be seen as anachronistic, it can also be inclusive of women who were lesbians, bisexuals, questioning, or didn't use any of those labels. 
It can also represent solidarity between gay men, lesbians, bisexuals, pansexuals, transgender folks, and other groups. Not everyone is comfortable with queer as an umbrella term. The acronym LGBTQIA2S+, also seeks to capture many of the different groups that can be included under the queer umbrella. Another term that gets reclaimed is the term dyke. Moving into the 90s and then into the 21st century, terms continue to change. For example, the term girl or girl with multiple R's also comes up as part of the riot girl movement. Certain terms can be so context specific that they differ across time, communities, and within certain specific activist circles. Since feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses of the 1970s and 1980s were often founded by women who identified as lesbians, but not always, it will be important to talk about lesbian culture as part of this discussion of the feminist nexus. If you're new to some of this terminology, I understand that it can be a bit confusing. For the purpose of this podcast and in my work and my life as a whole, I prefer to use the terms that individuals use for themselves, and we'll do that whenever possible. Okay, let's get started. So what is the feminist nexus? Feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses did not exist in a vacuum. They were part of a larger network of other feminist businesses and organizations. These included feminist bookstores, gift shops, sometimes sex toy shops, and feminist credit unions. There are also activist organizations and social groups. That, of course, includes larger national feminist organizations such as NOW, the National Organization for Women, Women's Action Alliance, and NARL, or NARL. There were also organizations rooted in more specific locations, such as Chicago Women's Liberation Union, CWLU, the Female Liberation in Boston, and Red Stockings in New York. You also have important groups, such as the Cumbahee River Collective. A side note, for a great history of the emergence of the Black, Chicana, and white feminist movements during the 1960s and 1970s, check out Benita Ross' book, Separate Roads to Feminism. Okay, so you have feminist stores and services, and a lot of international, national, and more local activist organizations. Lesbian bars were often part of this network too. These businesses and organizations were connected via formal and informal networks. Feminists communicated about broader networks of related organizations and businesses across their state or province, and even internationally, through a variety of forms. If we are focusing on the 1970s and 1980s, there are lots of feminist and lesbian feminist periodicals and magazines. These publications would often include articles and advertisements that talked about businesses and organizations. Locally focused periodicals would often highlight local businesses, whereas larger periodicals could share information about businesses and organizations across the country or internationally. Later on, such as in the 1990s, feminist zines played a similar role. Dr. Annalise Hines and Dr. Cameron Blevins, who we'll be speaking with in episode six, are currently working on a project about the periodical The Lesbian Connection. Within that periodical, there is contact information for women who could connect you to local networks and even sometimes put you up for the night. They're called contact dykes. These individuals acted as specific nodes. Hines and Blevins have used this information to create a mapping project. 
It's also interesting to compare and contrast Heinz's maps with my own feminist restaurant maps. Periodicals, magazines, and zines continued to be printed, but with the rise of the internet, you see the emergence of blogs and websites and e-magazines. In the 1970s and 1980s, there are lesbian and feminist radio shows. Into the 1990s, there is Dyke TV, a weekly 30-minute television show broadcast on local networks in the United States. Of course, the rise of the internet in 1996 and onward has been key. And search engines facilitated finding feminist spaces if someone knew the right keywords. Social networking sites such as Facebook and Instagram have further facilitated connection, despite sometimes algorithms that deprioritize feminist and queer content. From the 1970s to the 1990s, there were women's travel guides such as Gaia's Guide, or pronounced Gaia's Guide, depending on who you're talking to. These guides had information about where it was safer to travel for women, particularly lesbians, and whether or not businesses were feminist or women-owned or gay-owned. Communication scholar Kate McKinney's work investigates the creation of newsletters, as well as bibliography and index projects by feminists. You also have phone lines folks could call up. Even while researching Gaia's guides or Gaia's guides, Folks would call up phone operators asking for the Metropolitan Community Church sometimes just to touch base with a network. Of course, there is also word of mouth. At rallies, protests, and other activist events, people could exchange ideas and resources. Music festivals such as the Michigan Women's Festival, despite its later challenges of transphobia, were places feminists and lesbians could connect. This still happens at events today. Also, sometimes modern dating apps can help folks connect and share information about lesbian and queer women's events and businesses. You also have the role of touring musicians, authors, artists, and speakers who would travel between different feminist businesses or groups. Their tour posters help shine a light on broader feminist networks. The musician Alex Dobkin even had a song called The Lesbian Code about how she learned different phrases and code words between lesbians in her touring around the world. These networks were vast. And for folks who couldn't travel, they could still connect to these broader networks by reading a periodical or a feminist book or listening to an album produced by women's music companies such as Olivia Records while at home. These are huge international networks, but what about the local level? Nexus is a term that I think gets at the large and the small a bit more. I've used the term feminist nexus after the November 28, 1976 Boston Herald special feature in the special women's issue, which called the conglomeration of feminist businesses in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a nexus. This piece talked about New Words Bookstore, Bread and Roses Feminist Restaurant, and the local feminist credit union that made financing feminist endeavors more possible. These businesses were located in close proximity to each other and could cross-promote events and also work together. The other key piece to the local feminist nexus is the role of bulletin boards, with information about local women plumbers, upcoming concerts, folks looking for roommates, and more. You can see the feminist nexus appear, especially in cities and large towns, and especially college towns, across the United States and Canada, beginning in the 1970s. The feminist nexus is key for understanding feminist activist communications and economic networks from the 1970s to today. Grounded at first primarily in physical space, 
the feminist nexus of the late 20th and early 21st centuries has also expanded into the digital realm. This brings us to our first interview for today. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Jen Jack Giesking. Dr. Jen Jack Giesking is an urban and digital cultural geographer and environmental psychologist. They're engaged in research on how co-productions of space and identity in digital and material environments support and or inhibit social, spatial, and economic justice. They're a visiting associate professor of geography and environmental studies at Mount Holyoke College, where they teach courses on digital feminist and queer geographies, as well as critical cartography and mapping. As I mentioned earlier, they're the author of A Queer New York, Geographies of Lesbians, Dykes, and Queers, 1983 to 2008, which is a historical geography of contemporary lesbian queer society and economies in New York City. So create awesome LGBTQ data visualizations and have begun work on a book about dyke bars. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you just begin by saying your name, your pronouns, if you wish, and a little bit of a self-introduction? Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Alex. My name is Jack Giesking, and I am using they, he, um, and I am a queer uh, historical geographer and uh, cultural and digital geographer more broadly. I'm really interested in how lesbian, bi, queer, trans people uh, make space, make community, how they find one another, um, and how that changes over time. And so anywhere they go, I follow. So the shift from urban to digital has been a big progression. And I've gotten into rural spaces as well now, too. Fantastic. And you've written the book, A Queer New York Geographies of Lesbian Dykes and Queers, 1983 to 2008. At the start of the episode, I discussed some of the difficulties that terminology can pose, especially across time and space. I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about your title of the book and who are the folks you are talking about in your work? How have you navigated the challenge of labels in your research? Sure. Well, I'm someone who came to this from the perspective of changing identity labels myself. I came out as the lesbian. Well, first I thought I was bi, like, please, Lord, let me be bi in Catholic high school. And then came into being a lesbian. And then I found out I was queer. And then I realized I was trans in the middle of a class um, during my master's. And so it's been this progression over time and this kind of um, wanting to find a home and an identity, but knowing that they're, oh, and not only that um, they're going to change as you grow uh, for a lot of people, but also that they really have shifted so much over time when queer became something we used all the time. That was, you know, I was already in my teens and 20s. So that was really shocking to me growing up with such a horrible, treating it as such a horrible term. And now I'm a queer theorist, so mind blowing. Um, and so it's something I approached the book knowing that uh, interviewing people who came out from between 1983 and 2008, I didn't want to use their age because I think it's such an important marker of that moment when you come out. My um, advisor and committee was like, is that, are they going to remember what happens to them? I said, yeah, you know, when you come out, that's something profound. You're reckoning with something and you have to reckon with the moment. Like, uh, is there HIV AIDS and no hope of any kind of treatment? Is there, uh, are there lesbian Avengers on the streets of New York and you're seeing these wheat paste things like, um, wait, is marriage a movement? These are radically different ways of seeing the world, mm -hmm. right? Like has Tracy Chapman happened? This is like life. You know, it's like, like a two different eras of our lives. So when I, um, recruited people, 
Um, you know, I had to make a, I made a tiny flyer, which is like a quarter of a eight and a half by 11 and put it like anywhere I could. I gave out thousands of them, you know, bars, uh, co-ops, uh, walked around pride and Dyke March, um, et cetera. Uh, and definitely restaurants east of eighth, uh, Cal- Calgirl cafe, Calgirl cafe. Um, and, uh, I, I put lesbian and queer thinking this was like an economical use and thinking like lesbian might be old school to some people and queer, uh, might be more now like really showing, like, I want to talk intergenerationally. Um, what I found was that all of the people who took play took part, uh, felt those terms fit, but I met a lot of trans people along the way who were really saying, Oh, you know, in 2007, 2008, when I was recruiting for participants said, that's not me. Like, I don't know if people would mm-hmm. accept me in that way. I might identify that way, but the people in the room, it could go badly. I've had too many bad experiences. So I didn't have any participants who publicly identified as trans in the room to one another. They would tell me separately. A lot of them have come out as trans since I didn't. I wasn't comfortable with identifying with trans to the world. So it's not something I talked about yet. Um, I think what was also lost and uh, is having uh, Asian participants, right? Or having more black and brown participants. There were, you know, terms like stud would have signaled, um, you know, black, brown masculinities in a different way. Aggressive at the time was a term that was trying to overtake stud uh, in some ways and then disappeared a little bit and then sometimes comes back. Um, Participants who are Asian were just really, like I didn't put a lot about, like you will not be revealed. Like if I put a lot more about safety and security, so many people said to me, you know, I can't be queer. There's a great study by Michelle Tam who was an anthropologist, she wrote her master's about, you can't be queer Asian, you could be queer and Asian. Um, I don't know if all queer Asians obviously do not feel that way, um, but uh, you know, it's something that helped me reckon with what was happening. I didn't say two-spirit, two um, and so this is an indication that uh, people were left out too. So I think these terms, you have to be really all-encompassing. There's the mocking of the alphabet soup. I made quotes in the air in case, since you're listening to the podcast. Um, but people are that soup. There's like that melting pot of queerness. So I feel like I have tried to be all encompassing. I included the title has lesbians, dykes and queers. Um, and, uh, I put dykes in cause I just couldn't not, I feel like more books should have dyke in the title. And I thought it was a, a nod towards radicality, um, and maybe a term that would come back. So. It's one of my favorites. So that's why I included that. Terms are so challenging. And I think some of your methodological choices also allowed for kind of navigating some of the blurriness or difficulties around terms. Something I really appreciate about your book is your decision to have folks map out their own experiences in a very spatial way. So for folks who haven't read the book yet, and I emphasize the word yet, there are these wonderful maps You're so sweet to <laughs> drawn say. out by research participants. Um, can you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind having folks make these maps and what this map being process yielded? Were there particular challenges? Yeah, people get really excited about what you know what we call mental maps in geography, which are the kind of maps that are hand drawn or draw, maps that are drawn upon. Um, and this is a technique that really kind of took off in the '60s and '70s. Um, at MIT and Clark, where there was psychology and geography were like hanging out. Like it was the 60s and 70s and people were like, let's put our methods together. Like things got crazy. Social scientists were getting wild. Um, and they came up with like, oh, we'll let people draw these maps. Um, I have a learning disability and my 
the order of my sentences um, is, you know, when I write first drafts is never strong. And I skip some words. Sometimes I don't pick the right prepositions. I don't know if anybody else out there has other things that they deal with. Uh, but I found out, thanks to a really amazing mentor um, and my master's, that I have really strong spatial intelligence using Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences theory. And it started me thinking about how we interview people and we uh, prioritize and really privilege verbal communication um, in our research and what gets lost and how other people can tell stories. So for some people who were not spatially inclined, they were really offended that I asked them. <laughs> there are a few people mm -hmm. who were just like, I'm going to make a list for you. Um, and there's always drawing anxiety. We're not taught really to draw. We're not taught. We're definitely not taught to make maps. Um, and our spatial cognition skills have plummeted with the advent of Google Maps. We just stare at the screen as we walk around. Um, so having them uh, draw the maps, the idea was that they would bring something to the conversation that they were already thinking about. What are those places and spaces that meant something to me? Um, and I said, you know, around the time of your coming out, but if you want to add other things, that's great. Uh, and seeing them collapse time on these maps was really interesting and exciting. Uh, in terms of your research, because I don't want to lose that, the, there were definitely a restaurants on most of them or, you know, like always a Trader Joe's. Um, you know, what, and somebody's cruising somebody to Trader Joe's has long been, as soon as they were invented, right? Um, or the Park Slope Food Co-op, which you cannot ever leave out uh, of these stories. Um, but food clearly mattered because it's like, you know, how dates were arranged around that. Uh, Kate's Vegetarian, um, Zen Palette. I'm trying to remember, like there were so many restaurants that, that showed up. Um, and the idea of having uh, certain kinds of food, like what's healthy, what's sustainable, what is the joke about lesbians and hummus? Why do we love a hummus mm -hmm. and a pot? What is potlucks, right? Lesbian potlucks, always. So um, I think the maps made them just kind of contend with their own story. And then I want, because, um, and then come in and have that individual story to share in these groups because people were talking to each other across the 80s, the 90s, and the 00s. And I didn't want anyone to show up and be like, oh my God, I, what? Okay, there was that place. What was it called? And spend that time doing that instead of sitting and being present with other people. So having something to look mm -hmm. at and be like, oh yeah, this is where that was. And oh, you reminded me of this. Mm -hmm. So it became more and more. And then the people also talked just within the 80s, the 90s or the O's. So having that like, oh, I forgot about that place. Wow, that that bar was great. And then of course we needed to get pizza. And we all went to, the, and I found out they all went to the same pizza place for 25 years, which is, it's like Rizzo oh, wow. Pizza number two. It's like the, one of the most banal names of a place possible, but it just happens to be that convergence of a spot with the cheap enough pizza and it's open this late and the lights are really bright. And so there's like a safety element. Um, so the, the maps were great. And they're also really compelling for participants or, and, and readers because you're staring at it and you're like, what, what's in here? What's mine? Um, I've had people reach out and draw theirs and just send them to me. It's one of my favorite things. Oh, if cool. anyone's listening, I will totally, I want to look at yours. I think they're fun. Um, I should, should put mine online at some point. I drew it after I was doing the research. Um, but yeah, I think the maps are really cool to think about. And then you start the conversation about how different spaces and experiences were connected or, oh, I'd, actually, I'd, it's not that I hate this neighborhood. It's just, I had a bad breakup there. Oh, okay. You know, like in retrospect, mm -hmm. so how these, how emotion and space and affect and possibility were linked to one another were really, really great. Yeah. 
And since you had just mentioned your website, for anyone listening, Jack's website also has a lot of other kind of visualizations about like queerness, queer histories, queer geographies that I recommend you check out. There's some really great like data visuals there. Yeah. And um, I made two giant maps um, of just lesbian queer places from archival data uh, and excited for other people to they have census data so you can compare them and look at them and teach with them or just learn about queer history. Um, yeah. And maps are so great. They're so great. But the drawn maps compared to the GIS, like the, the computerized cartography, I think are even more compelling because it's it's like somebody's heart is in it. Someone's being is mm-hmm. in it. One of my favorite parts about your book is when you start and you begin with the role of the blue star tattoos on the wrist within various lesbian communities and how this gave way to your concept of constellations. So maybe for our listeners, if you can say a little bit more about the blue star tattoos, but also can you explain your idea of queer space constellations? Absolutely. I'll, I'll do both. So um, my my research kind of started in wanting to understand like how do lesbians and queers find one another and how do they recognize like what is a lesbian place because these days all we have is that's called a lesbian place is a lesbian bar really like there's a couple we might say a couple bookstores a couple restaurants but for the most part we would say the bar and now that we know there are less than a couple dozen of them um, in the world the lesbian bar projects really helped uh, educate the public about that um, i was thinking about like how do we how do we like know what is lesbian, what is queer too? And I um, had read Kennedy and Davis's Blues, uh, Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, which is like the lesbian history of all histories, the first one, 1992. I read it in college and it was like the holy grail, like this, the ah, like holding this book. And somewhere like way into the book, 200 some pages, um, they talk about this group of lesbians getting drunk in the early 1950s. They, well, they're not, sorry, they don't say that they're drunk. They, they go out in the 1950s and it seems very intentionally in the book that they decide they're going to get blue stars behind their wrist. Um, and then they can wear a watch during the day and they'll take it off at night to signal one another. And over the years, so many people have said this to me, like, isn't that an amazing story? Um, a friend in college actually got the tattoo and I was like, oh my God, you did it. Like it's, it's, it's not dead. It's something that's still carried on our bodies. And then over the years, it was obvious to me that the number of blue star tattoos I saw. But then in, when I, I saw a couple of my participants had them, I said, oh, why did, why did you get them? Not as a setup, but what it, thinking, what did it mean to you? And they said, oh, I heard it was a lesbian thing to do. And I was like, whoa, y'all, I got to tell you, got to tell you about this history. Let me tell you. And what was shocking to me was that it, maybe it was Kennedy and Davis, maybe not. But that 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 story or this idea of like what a lesbian thing to do gets like filtered around and shared. And we don't really know because we don't have that much public history. We're not taught our history. We're, uh, we don't see it in the news. We hear over and over again about Stonewall. We hear over and over again. You might hear about Compton's Cafeteria. You may know who Susan Stryker is. You know who Judith Butler is, right? Like we have this very limited canon. God bless Jack Halverson, right? Same kind of group of people. Um and so how do we like get these ideas and share them? And Madeline Davis, who co-wrote the book, I, I did a, I was in grad school and by the grace of goddesses was asked to run a panel of seventies lesbian spaces. And I was, it was like, I started in 83 because the seventies is like, ah, can I do it justice? Right. The sisters get very demanding. And I was like, and, and I'm, and I'm always like, what happened in the eighties? And then when you ask eighties lesbians, they're like, well, the seventies lesbians, it's so much. And I was like, Oh, I think, 
not having the 70s lesbians might help the 80s lesbians speak. So that's why I started in the 80s. So I'm doing this panel and Madeline freaking Davis is on it, who just recently passed away, queen of queens, what an amazing person. And uh, Liz Kennedy was the academic who wrote the book and Madeline Davis was the actress. I didn't know this story about them. And I said, did you know that I had these people in my research? And I think this is where, I think it's from your book. And she laughed. She laughed so hard and she pulled off her watch and she's like, she showed me her blue star tattoo just like this. And then she goes, we got drunk and I convinced them all to get these tattoos. Isn't that hilarious? And then we put it in the book and I'm like, oh my God. So we got drunk one night in Buffalo in 1950, whatever. And now dykes everywhere, les bi, queer, trans people are like, oh yeah, I'll get a blue star tattoo. That's my thing. And I'm like, what? Like what? Like what moments get recorded and what matter, and I think um, yeah, that was it. That brings me to you know constellations that you asked about. So um, one thing I really noticed in my participants talking about, I said, "What is a lesbian queer space?" It would say a neighborhood, and I would say, "Oh, tell me about that." And they're like, "Oh, well, you know, we don't actually have one." I feel like it's my fault. I should have kept Park Slope going to this neighborhood in Brooklyn, ultra gentrified, by the way. Or, you know, I don't really go to the village that much. It's actually kind of expensive, but I don't go. And, you know, and then a kind of self or I don't want to gentrify this area. So I didn't move to this neighborhood, the white people, or be black women coming from a primarily black neighborhood like Bed-Stuy saying like, well, you can't really do that publicly in that way. You know, you can do certain kinds of things, but only at the night, and et cetera. Um, or it's got to be named in this way and done this way. So, and this has totally changed over time. And I had read so much in the 2000s about gay neighborhoods and the gayborhood. And I started to get kind of frustrated because I kept thinking about like a lesbian sense of territoriality. What, I don't really see that happening with our people. We're not very good with territory or a claiming or a I, I would not put exclusion as our first thing that we try to do in the world or, you know, boundary making. We're working on our boundary making always as sisters, sisters, brothers, sisters do, but um, other kinds of boundary making. And so it was more like in the maps that they were drawing and the stories they were telling that their places weren't very long lasting, that they were much more spread out. Um, and I started to think of them as fragmented and fleeting. And... Um, I was talking with my advisor, this amazing woman named Cindy Katz, and she's like, oh, is it like an archipelago? And funny enough, Amin Gaziani writes about gay archipelagos, kind of like when gay male neighborhoods kind of break up, like you can't afford to stay there. Um, they become very touristified. There's like little pockets of gayness that kind of go out from there. And I said, and that's happened years since. And I was like, no, no, it's not an archipelago. I said, it's more like, you know, like a star, like the star, like the light comes down from the sky after the star goes out and you keep carrying this meaning of this place because these places still matter. It doesn't matter, you know, if a um, woman news, the bookstore is there. So many people walk by that place on the Upper West Side and they're like, that's where woman news. Oh, I met that cute girl there. Oh, I bought, oh, it was the first time I bought a Rita Mae Brown or whatever. And so, um, I was thinking about how place still matters and how you have Sufi places. So I called it constellations, like thinking about how these stories, like what was left off those maps was like walking around, moving through, rolling through, um, taking the subway through the city and these patterned places um, and making these patterns of your life, like making actual constellations. There's also the fact that we love astrology. There's a tendency among our people to love. I'm a Leo. What are you? 
Alex. I don't know. I'm a cancer. Oh, how wonderful. Happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Have you yeah. had your birthday um, yet? Or no, it's no, soon. no, no, yeah. no. It's very soon. Very excited about it. Love August. Can't wait. Um, but thinking about like what would be a term that worked for us, right? That you that you're you didn't say, I have to look that up or I can't remember this is my birthday. Like mm-hmm. we all know. Like we know what our right we might not know what our rising is or our moon, but someone can look that up for you while you're sitting there at dinner. Um and so you know, how does, I want to give a term that matters to people. And I also like the implication of it for me was that I was really sad listening to all these people say that they had failed to keep a neighborhood and that somehow they had lost the way forward to liberation. But that was through property ownership. Like that's not, the capitalism thing's never going to work, period, let alone for women and queer and trans people, BIPOC people, um, immigrants. And I think, uh, it was like saying, actually, you made something amazing and you make something that keeps kind of thwarting capitalism and it's very temporary in this way. And then you create a new space and you put a lot of effort into it. Um, so how can we, you know, think about the light of these places carrying us forward in different ways? Like, how do we take account of them and how do we feel proud of ourselves? And, and how do we also crit- critically address the, the things we did not do well? Like, how did racism affect our communities and ableism? Um, and ageism and on, you know, onward. So that's so beautiful. I love this image of the constellation so much. And in your book, you're primarily talking about constellations within New York city and the boroughs, but how do you see this concept working or not working on a scale different from a city? Can it work on a national or international context, or is it more at a smaller, more local scale? Um, do you use some kind of different framework when you're looking broader than the city? Hmm. I think, so I've been thinking about that because I started, I moved to the, I moved to Kentucky and I was at the University of Kentucky for a number of years. And it was, it's so radically different the way places made a little bit more, um, some places being more underground. Um, uh, The lack of like publicness and moving between spaces also is really based on a car. Mm. Um, And so you lose that, that feel of a city that you might get like in a San Francisco or Seattle, um, but it's not going to be in LA. Like in LA, you're going to drive everywhere. Mm-hmm. You're going to take the 405 to the 5, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, and Chicago, you're going to get, so it's like, you know, these different kind of like walking, rolling cities versus rolling and shout out to wheelchairs, not saying cars, um, then um, car-based cities. I've asked people about it and they see the same sort of patterns um, in cities that are based with cars. And I think being in Lexington and being in, um, and talking to a lot of people from Appalachia uh, about queer spaces and queer lives, especially lesbians by queer trans people, I think that the constellations might be like a stronger experience also for gay men too. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially BIPOC people, like just to think about how um, fragmented um, and, and split up like your life has to be um, and where you can go and can't go. Um, I, d- I don't know about it happening over scales, but I thought a lot about people traveling, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you are a New Yorker and you go on vacation to insert name of wherever city here, then you're going to go to that bar or you're going to mm-hmm. go to that, that famous place in London and Berlin. Like you're going to go to Berlin and you, you might go to Bergheim or you go to Silver Future, or you go to Ratumtat, you know, like, um, and how does that, how does that like affect what you see? And then how are we connected across places? Um, 
And I also think like a rural place, like kind of like thinking of historic spaces, because I've done a lot of work with this queer historic preservation in the U.S., like some place like um, Matthew Shepard's, uh, like the site where he was left behind, mm-hmm. um, is a kind of pilgrimage that a lot of queer people have gone on, even just driving along I-80. They're like, wow, I'm in Laramie. I'm going to, I'm just going to stop in Laramie. I'm going to kind of be here mm-hmm. in this moment and thinking about how those spaces connect us and just maybe seeing another queer person on the street and being like, whoa, um, you know, this violent act happened here, which gets localized to Laramie and blamed on the rural, which I, I don't agree with, but how, these places kind of repeat and connect us. Um, yeah. But, you know, and, and the other thing made me think of it. I, I don't know if you've read Jeremy Atherton Lynn's Gay Bars book, Why We Went Out. Have you? Yeah. And it's very chat. For those who haven't read it, it is just high goss um, of like these fabulous gay boy hookups. But there's also a lot of like history woven into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he happened to live this kind of magical life where he's like, oh, I was selling, I was selling like, uh, creams and lotions, but it happened to be Castro camera. You know, that was Harvey Milk's, you know, and like, what is the history of this place and what was here before? Um, and there's something like a lesbian activist group where they wanted to, I, I forget this, this lesbian activist couple accidentally moved into a space that used to be a gay bar somewhere in the Midwest. They were so excited about it. And I think like the residue of these places really, really matters. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I yeah, think, you're- yeah constellation with the stars of the residue it really like seeps into this narrative that you're working on now your your new work is looking at a specific kind of place the dyke bar and so uh, where are you looking at these dyke bars with time frame how are you defining the dyke bar can you tell us a bit more about that um so the title of the book will actually be dyke bars asterisk because i want to use the asterisk to think through what the dyke bar was is and yet could be so something that you get if you read through every lesbian history you can get your hands on in any way is this kind of, you'll get a, a real focus on the bar and then you'll get these stories that like, and black women really liked to and or only were allowed to throw rent parties where they would um, serve food in these spaces and then charge money for people to come over, have drinks and things like that, um, have great music. And there's a great line in Thin Enki's um Finding the Movement. Uh, finding the Movement. Thank you. Yes. I, I mean, we've read all the same books. This is great. Um, this, is, this is really fun. Um, where uh, they say that, I think Finn is using that. Um, apologies if not. Um, uh, they say that, uh, well, there's a, a line from the interviewing a black woman from who came out in the 70s. It was like, oh, we could finally go to the bars. More of us could go to the bars. Um, we weren't policed out with, you know, multiple, as many multiple forms of identification, which continued forever um, in lesbian gay bar culture. Uh, but we got there and the music sucked. And it was like, oh, wow. Right. This is not like it's not something I sat and thought about that. Why weren't the rent parties bars? What is that? Why? I mean, they're selling drinks. Like, what is the limit to that? Um, in the 1920s in New York, we didn't have bars. We had tea rooms because we, women weren't allowed to drink. Um, so what is the geographical focus? I am anywhere I can find evidence of them is great. I was just in Berlin at the Spinboden Lesbian Archive and talking to the archivist. She showed me, and I think it's 1925, lesbian bar guide. And I think this is the first lesbian bar guide in the world. And I like put my finger on it real fast. Um, that was that was super amazing. Um, and then she showed me some Magnus Hirschfeld original publications that I almost oh, died. Wow. I, thank you. Yeah, Woo. guys, look him up if you don't know. Thank God for Magnus. Um, and 
Yeah. So for me, this book was thinking about, I just written a whole book about neighborhoods not working. And I got contacted by seven journalists um, at the beginning of the Lesbian Bar Project uh, kind of pickup. You know, there's only, at first it was like, there's less than 20 lesbian bars. Now they say 21. At first they said 15. And um, others came out of the woodwork that they didn't know about. And I had been at advisor at both times and spoken at the first one. And uh, I was so frustrated that no one wanted to hear about any other lesbian, queer, bi, trans sort of space. Mm-hmm. Right. It was just about bars. And I was like, what is it about bars? Like, what's the imaginary? Um, so the bar, the book is really trying to contend with why are we so obsessed with dyke bars? Like, what do they do? Um, and Lisa Nakamura was a really brilliant um, scholar of, of digital race studies said to me, you know, Jack, what they really want to know, what everyone wants to know is what's happening in there. Mm. <laughs> And I was like, well, it's just pillow fights as long as the eye, as far as the eye can see. It's just high seduction, Lisa. It's actually very awkward. Um, it's and also very sweet and very fun and very sexy and then very empty. And, you know, it's a bar. It's, you know, it's what bars are. But like trying to open that up. So there's a lot about history. There's a lot about the practices that make a bar, like the social relationship, political, sexual, um, and, and the recognition practices that form that space. Um, and really trying to understand like the, and the reductionism, like when you create everything and you say, oh, it's a lesbian bar and they're closing, you know, it's this distinction narrative, like Mark Rifkin writes really beautiful in an indigenous studies about creating indigenous people only in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening, I think, to lesbians and queers. And I mean, I think that's why your work is also really, really important. Like this, there's like a couple of people, like, especially you as the, like the scholar doing this, like looking at restaurants and how food works. And there's so many other ways of creating lesbian queer place, which is what I really want to talk about in the book. There's a whole chapter like, woohoo, let me pull back the field and let you let me show you that the dyke bar only exists if you had some place to eat also, because you're gonna probably get tipsy. And you might want to go on a date. How's that gonna work? And you're gonna maybe go to a movie, you're gonna go bowling, or you're gonna go take a walk. You know, like how does that or you're gonna do this activist meeting at whatever center or house, and then you're gonna go, you know? So how it works in relationship to all these places is really important. And how, who couldn't go, right? Who's sober or sober curious is now a whole movement I found out, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And I think too, sometimes the fixation on bars is to have this kind of parallelism with like gay male culture, where there's such an emphasis on like the gay male bar, but then we miss out on so many different, as you're speaking towards, like lesbian spaces, queer women's spaces, when people don't have as much access to money or land or property. And yeah, so it's it's just a very different kind of narrative, but there's so much emphasis, especially in the popular kind of rhetoric about it, of trying to say like, okay, well, we understand what a gay male bar is. There must be the same thing for women, you know? So that's kind yeah. of, I think, too, part of this fixation. Totally. And the idea that gay male ballers are so sultry. I mean, Lynn's book is very sexy. There's a lot of sex in it. I don't know that lesbian who has had this similar parallel ex- existence in that many bars. Um, you know, one thing I love to to say, there was a whole dissertation I read somewhere in the dissertation database about women's intake, alcohol intake. And mm. it's it's like it's like a third of what, or like maybe half of what gay, of what men can drink. Like people sign male birth, people sign female birth. It's just the way alcohol breaks down their system. You know, well, yeah, no, not as many lesbian bars can survive because we can't drink that much. It's kind of really basic. 
you know, another thing um, that I found out in my uh, in my first research when those interviews was that I was asking about cruising, right? The idea of like um, usually associated with gay men, like public hooking up culture. And I said, you know, why don't we do that as much? And I had like a handful of participants out of 47 say that they did that. And uh, the rest of them said, well, I do that. And I said, how do you do that? Well, I make eye contact. And then what happens? Nothing. Okay, so why... <laughs> Why does nothing happen, my friends? Tell me. And somebody said, I said, why don't we have sex in the, like, I was just, I would, it felt like at times when I was talking with them, uh, some of my questions were just like from the literature, from history or the dominant narratives, like, why do we do it this way? What do you think? And having so many women and trans people and gender nonconforming people together and actually getting to think about it over generations, they had, they're really smart people, really good at theorizing things. So they came up with all these great ideas. And then one, one woman said, it's just so dirty. I don't want to have sex in a park. And the other one said, you know, I'm kind of scared. I'm scared of parks tonight. I'm supposed to be scared of parks tonight. I'm a woman, so I'm supposed to be scared of parks And somebody else said, well, it just takes me so long to orgasm. And then it just occurred to me that the boys don't have to lie down. And I was at um, a table of gay men at some fabulous dinner months later, and they were starting to pick on lesbians. Oh, they don't cruise. They're, they're, they're prudish. And I said, actually, and then I said, you know, we'd have to lie down. It takes longer. It's less safe. And they were like, oh my God, I wouldn't go to that park either. How awful. You know, and it was mm. so fantastic. They're like, I'm going to tell all the boys. Oh God. Yeah. I would. Yeah. It takes longer. I had no idea. Tell me, you know, like, so they, you know, this kind of how we imagine each other, like gay men and lesbians are not hanging out. Um, and straight people evidently aren't hanging out with us to think, you know, that gay men's bars are like lesbian bars. So yeah, it's a lot of fun to write about and read about. And I never thought I'd write a book about diapers. This brings us to our final topic of discussion. How's what you've done in your research the same and or different from thinking in urban theory about queer life? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I think that it goes back to this territory idea. Like when we think about cities, you know, because over half the world was living in cities and we don't have this number now because of COVID. So many people have moved because of remote work. But who has the power to do that, right? Like white people have moved, um, wealthy people, middle-class mm-hmm. people, whoever's left of the middle class, have moved to suburbs and rural places. <clears throat> and um, you still, I would think you still really have most people living in cities. So like how cities work and don't work is really key. And for me, I, I, um, I adore um, a Marxist geographer named Don Mitchell, and he was giving a talk about the Braceros, kind of like the immigrant work program in Mexico um, in the mid 20th century. And he was, uh, he was like, what was the Bracero's role in the production of capital in the United States? And my mind kind of exploded. I was like, how did lesbians and queers create capital? Like, what is like, why are we allowed to be like, what, like you can see all of these laws and efforts to, just eliminate entire populations of people or make sure, you know, the idea that we're groomers, the idea that like, um, if you get rid of, you know, there's a preacher in South Carolina who wants to open the House Un-American Activities Committee um, mm. to, to say that LGBTQ people have created treason and wow. this kind of like cruelness um, and violence. And even hearing this has always been awful, but like a new generation is hearing the vitriol of the eighties and, mm-hmm. and it's wild to me. And, um, 
thinking about like how cities work, like why did they let us live? Why did they let so many lesbians? Why, you know, like there are police, there are mechanisms to um, force people into cis heterosexuality. Why did that work? When I say allowed to, like how, you know, we can get by systems and so much, but you know, we also face these limits. We have, we have to resist, we have to fight, we have to organize um, to keep changing them. And so thinking about that, that role, like what are lesbians doing? We're really sexy supposedly to this this imaginary we um have certain kind of institutions we do a lot of the service work um yeah we have a lot of like we are like infrastructure to, to society in so many ways um and we're not respected for that in fact we're you know occluded we're you know hidden in this way so it's something that really i think hopefully made urban theorists think differently about like grouping lgbtq people together about the obsession or insistence on territory um about yeah, just like this unique idea of like lesbian, bi, queer, trans existence, right? And how that group might work together. Amazing. Well, where can people find out more about your work? Where the websites, social media handles, and where can they find your books? If you Google Jack Queer New York, it will come up. It is me. And um, you can find my website. And I hope you, if you do buy the book, you can get it for 30% off uh, with the code QueerNY30 from NYU Press. But if you have the money, please support an independent bookstore um, and don't buy it from Jeff Bezos, if possible, please. And um, yeah, and uh, also uh, all of my articles and my chapters are free on my website, too. Um, Yeah, you can play with the maps, play with the data viz. Have a great time. Amazing. And we'll link to those resources in the show notes and transcript. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. This was super cool. Posted links to Jack's book and website in the show notes and transcript. Okay, so in this episode, we have thought about different frameworks for better understanding connections between feminist, lesbian, and queer women's businesses and organizations. At the top of the episode, I also mentioned the lesbian and queer women's music scene, or scenes. Touring musicians traveled between restaurants, cafes, coffee houses, bars, bookstores, women's centers, music venues, festivals, and more nationally and often internationally. Music comes up a lot in the history of feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, both in the period of the 1970s and 80s and into the 21st century. So for the places in the 70s and 80s, there are times when founders, such as Selma Miriam, a bloodroot feminist vegetarian restaurant at Bridgeport, Connecticut, talk about wanting to play women's music only in their restaurants. Lesbian musician Mae Christian, who was part of the women's music movement and was one of the founders of Olivia Records, a women's music record company, stated in an interview with radio host Duds Turkle that women's music for her was related to feminism and that her music is feminist, but she preferred the term women's music. She defined it as music that becomes consciously out of her awareness of herself as a woman in the world, what that means to her and the insights that she's had about it that it tries to tell the truth, it tries to give us positive images and support, end quote. The history of women's music, feminist music, and lesbian music is intertwined. In archives of feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, there are copious posters from touring lesbian, feminist, and women's music musicians. 
No matter the decade, there are often lots of musical events, either highlighting touring or local musicians. Over time, there is less of an emphasis on women's music, but about supporting women and queer musicians or supporting local artists. This brings us to the work of our next guest. Kirsten is a PhD candidate in musicology and gender and women's studies at McGill University. Their dissertation project, a historical ethnography of LGBTQ club cultures in Montreal between 1975 to 1995, is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, SHRC. Kirsten is also a labor rights activist with the Association of Graduate Students employed at McGill. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you please begin by telling us your name, your pronouns, if you wish, and a little bit about yourself? So my name is Kirsten Besterda Van Vliet, and I am um, she, her, or they, them are both okay. And I'm a PhD candidate at McGill in musicology and uh, gender and women's studies. Amazing. Can you start by telling us a bit about your dissertation? So my dissertation is a history of music and dance cultures in Montreal's LGBTQ plus communities from the 1970s to the mid 1990s. I study the use of music and how it intersects with emerging gender and sexual identities, community building and activism. So I'm writing a chapter on music and dance in lesbian spaces in the 1980s. Uh, Montreal was quite significant for the development of lesbian bars, clubs and coffee houses. Um, so while dance music from disco to EDM is the emphasis of my research, I place Montreal's women's music scenes within, you know, local music networks, as well as within broader ideological debates about music at that time. And I also, if I can plug it, I have um, an article in press with Les Cahiers de la Société Québécoise de Recherche en Musique about women's participation in nightlife dance music cultures in Quebec. Uh, it's a broad historical survey of the latter half of the 20th century, but I center the innovation of the discotheque and discotheque dancing and the development of the solo club dancer on women's access to nightlife. Um, and this article actually also includes excerpts from an interview I had with Suzanne Etier, who was, who was the first female DJ in Montreal to mix records live. And she was the primary DJ at the lesbian discotheque Le Bilitzi, from 1985 until it closed in 1991. That's so exciting. Congrats on the article. Thanks. As you were mentioning networks and as something that we've talked about earlier in this episode, one of the things that tied together feminist, restaurant, ca feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, not to mention bars, bookstores, women's centers, and festivals was of course music. So you're looking at music and dance scenes in Montreal. Who are some of the musicians and main musical acts within the kind of queer music scene, lesbian music scene of the time? So many of the scenes I'm researching are dance oriented uh, with the music. So it's like disco and house and new wave. And those genres wouldn't necessarily be classified as women's music. Uh, in these spaces, the political meaning of dance music is not as important as its affect. So it's how literally moving people on the dance floor. But through this research, I've gotten a sense of some of the networks of musicians and music consumption of, you know, mu women's music. Um, I think it's 
worth defining women's music before we discuss the Montreal context. Uh, and I mean, some of the definitional difficulties you've mentioned, Alex, in, in your own book for, for identifying and defining uh, feminist restaurants and women's music has its own problems <laughs> with uh, a definition because it's quite a broad category. It's really more of a sensibility um, uh, and it's, you know, usually music that's performed by women or marketed predominantly towards female audiences, uh, but has a feminist uh, lyrical content um, as well as usually a primarily a female vocalist. And this vocalist is usually the songwriter. And then any genre of music could be considered women's music. And you see a variety of genres from reggae to brass bands. But as with a lot of aspects of women's culture from the 1970s and 80s, we can trace many political and aesthetic aspects from the 1960s U.S. American counterculture and the civil rights movement. So for 1970s women's music, there's a link between 1960s urban folk and singer-songwriter music and folk rock. Uh, so that's sort of the core of the music uh, genre of women's music in the 1970s. And it's notable that all of these genres prioritize storytelling and the straightforward delivery of lyrics. And that all of that is very characteristic of women's music as well. So all of that, I would say, is sort of maybe our working definition of, of women's music. Um, so with mu women's music, like other aspects of women's culture, there's an emphasis on this political engagement and orientation, both with lyrical content and the production of the music. So much of this music was recorded, produced, and distributed by independent record companies, and the most prominent being Olivia Records. Quebec had its own independent label uh, created in the model of Olivia Records called SPPS Discs. Uh, so that stands for Société de Production et de Programmation de Spectacles. SPPS was founded around 1974 by Lise Aubou, Angèle Arsenault, Edith Butler, and Jacqueline Lemay. And they released about 20 records between 1975 and 1982. Actually, Lemay's song, La Moitié du Monde est une femme, so Half of the World is a Woman, was one of the first Canadian recordings of feminist music and was composed for International Women's Year in 1975. Um, Lise Obu was a songwriter and producer and the impresario of the group rather than a performer. While Arsenault, Butler and LeMay are performers. Actually, Arsenault and Butler are Acadian rather than Quebecois. So they came from this Acadian folk background and were trained as folklorists and ethnographers and I can't say for certain that any of those women identified as lesbian, uh, but their, their music was considered women's music and was celebrated and promoted in Quebec's lesbian periodicals. Um, other local groups and performers um, in Montreal would perform at lesbian feminist conferences or were regular performers in lesbian bars. This includes the rock group Machum, which had like a humorous kind of sketch-like presentation um, also using humor in their performances was a troupe called Running Show, which performed for 600 women at the 1983 Lesbian Visibility Day in Montreal. And a review for that concert um, considers the show like a little Michigan women's music festival here in Montreal. Uh, so it really shows the influence of the festival on international lesbian feminist music cultures. And a more avant-garde group that was also active through the 1980s was Wonder Brass, which was later known as Justine. And they were a nine-piece band that was influenced by feminist music, but also jazz, 
and a genre called musique actuelle, which is a genre that originates in Quebec uh, that combines pop, jazz, and contemporary art music composition. So they're a little bit more avant-garde in their sound. Um, and then in the 1980s, we also have Lucie Bleu Tremblay, who is probably the biggest uh, name from the Montreal area. Within that super rich answer that you just gave with so many amazing details, Part of that, we also hear about some of these kinds of connections and relationships between the U.S. and Canada and the U.S. and Quebec with these women's music networks. And you just mentioned Lucie Boutremblay of Quebec, and I know that she played a show with Alex Dobkin, who was quite notorious for touring around the U.S., Canada, and other parts. And their show was in Montreal in February of 1986. So for listeners, Laura Nouvelle of the Archive Les Viennes du Québec shared a poster of that show with me that I'll post in our show notes. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your findings of these kind of lesbian music networks and how they worked across the U.S. and Canadian borders and how musicians potentially collaborated or shared within these networks. Yeah, that's a, a great example of a collaboration across the border. Um, Lucie Blue Tremblay actually had her U.S. debut at the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which is sort of the central uh, festival for, for lesbian feminist, uh, well, feminist music, but it had a big contingency of lesbian feminist musicians as well. And so Tremblay also recorded her debut record with Olivia Records. So you see that connection with the U.S. Uh, scene um, is very strong with her. So at the Michigan Women's Music Festival, Tremblay shared the stage uh, in 1985 with the West Coast uh, Canadian singer-songwriter singer Ferrand. And these two musicians had met earlier in the 80s at the festival. So they, they met and started collaborating together. They toured in Montreal and I think also the West Coast. And then they went back to the festival as performers later on. So the festival was a hub for artists to connect and to develop an artistic practice on shared political beliefs. Um, so even in independent feminist music scenes, it seems that the most successful Canadian acts in the genre of mu women's music relied heavily on US net networks of music festivals and conferences, record labels, radio stations, periodicals, and so on. All of the things that, that you're mentioning uh, in the podcast. Uh, at the same time, a lot of Canadian feminist musicians, such as the ones I mentioned who founded the SPPS label, uh, traveled in folk circles. Of course, Canada has a very rich and distinct folk music tradition. So the, that network of folk music supported many feminist and lesbian feminist Canadian artists. But in general, the category of women's music and the distinct feminist practices around it were heavily influenced by what was going on in the U.S. And in particular, the ideas about lesbian separatism and these back to the land movements, ideas that are really embodied in feminist music festivals like the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Um, that That is very U.S., uh, I would say very U.S. feminist uh, centric. <laughs> and uh, actually women from Montreal would organize a group uh, through lesbian periodicals and through their, their lesbian activist organizations to make an annual pilgrimage to this festival in Michigan. So, And then they also worked to make the festival more accessible to Francophones, which is really interesting. One of the things that you were just speaking about too was the way that some of these musicians worked within networks of kind of feminist or lesbian networks for some of their touring and production. And then they also kind of had this other side of their 
touring or their music business in either folk or whatever genre they're in. And I kind of noticed those changes too in looking at interviews from performers in the U.S. who started their careers kind of working within the lesbian or women's or feminist music scene, and then over time entered into more venues that weren't as politically connected or oriented, but were more around a certain genre. And so I'm wondering within your own research, how you saw women's and lesbian music change over time, and if there were thematic differences in the lyrics, or were there changes that you've seen in distribution networks or changes in the marketing or anything else? There are many, many changes. And I think that uptake from the margins to to the center of culture is very common in all sorts of musical genres. So you see that uptake of feminist music, uh, feminist ideals in music uh, in the mainstream o- over time. But then there are also specific uh, differences in in the music itself, and especially I would say the singer-songwriter genre. And I can speak to both of those things. So as, as I mentioned, women's music in the 1970s and 80s was heavily influenced by folk and singer-songwriter and folk rock. One of the most significant changes over time was the inclusion of different genres under the category of women's music and feminist music. So the variety of acts that you see at festivals and being recorded on feminist music labels um, was was expanding. So while early women's music may have had like a particular sound heavily influenced by those genres, um, the broader practice of feminist music becomes more inclusive of genres like funk and R&B and world music and salsa, and also as as a consequence, more inclusive of more racially diverse and ethnically diverse artists and consumers. So that's one big change, I I would say, in the whole genre. Um, And then within the the singer-songwriter tradition from the 1970s to the 1990s, there are changes in thematic and lyrical content. So the first generation of these musicians in the 70s and 80s uh, often sung about the political and social concerns of feminists and lesbian feminists. So motherhood and childbirth, sexual orientation, violence against women, and sexism. So in addition to expanding the range of female subjectivity represented in popular music, this was a type of consciousness raising. By the 1990s, feminist singer-songwriters are even more frank and personal in their lyrics. And I really think about like Ani DeFranco and her music where she's talking about her abortion, uh, her sexuality and gender-based violence. So it's, it's even more personal rather than just like the, the sort of political orientation of, of what a woman might be. And so um, with music festivals, you also see uh, a big change. Um, I see a continuation of music festivals like the music, Michigan Women's Music Festival to Lilith Fair which ran from 1997 to 1999. So for those who don't know, Lilith Fair was an all-female artist or female-fronted band uh, summer tour. And it was the concept of Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin, which um, in an effort to address the problems of how um, few women artists and female-fronted bands were being featured at music festivals. So there was quite a mix of artists who were participating in this festival, including several who had their start or who had performed at the Michigan Women's Music Festival, including Tracy Chapman, the Indigo Girls, and McLaughlin herself. And this, you know, festival, this Lilith Fair included a lot of different genres, a lot of different artists, including Lauren Hill, Missy Elliott, Queen Latifah, The Chicks, 
Diana Krall and actually had the you know young Canadian lesbian duo Tegan and Sarah uh, on stage on like the B stage for one of the tour dates. So it's quite uh, an interesting sort of generational split and continuation of the Michigan Women's Festival. Um, so yeah, I, I see a lot of uptake of uh, ideas from lesbian feminist uh, music in into the mainstream as well in like alternative music. Um, but also in terms of the music business and and sort of that that change over time really started with like the trailblazing and visionary um, approach of lesbian feminist uh, musicians. And with that last line, you're kind of touching on my final question, which is how do you think lesbian music and women's music contributed to and or impacted lesbian and feminist cultures? I know it's a huge question. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, there's a surprisingly rich discourse in Quebec's lesbian and feminist periodicals um, about music and not just women's music. So these women were debating the use value of music for feminist organizing, how certain genres or artists might foster a feminist consciousness or criticizing music that might have the opposite effects. So consciousness, consciousness raising is one of the important uses of lesbian and fem- feminist music. And so in addition to fostering this sense of individual and collective identity, it was also important for women to have music for their events that would not perpetuate harmful stereotypes of women, uh, such as the representation of women in what they called cock rock. (laughs) That was one of the common criticisms. Um, In terms of the music business, this isn't something I've, I've touched on yet. Um, But the music business has always been so chauvinistic and male dominated. So it was very important for these women to create their own labels where they could release the music they wanted and have control over the artistic process from from production to how the music was marketed, as well as retain ownership of their own intellectual property. So uh, even today, music production is a male dominated space. So these women were trailblazers in learning and teaching other women the technical skills of of music production and marketing. And addition, in addition to challenging this status quo in the music industry, lesbian and feminist music made feminist ideas more palatable to mainstream audiences of popular music. And you can see these effects to, to this day. And it's just kind of a critical mass in every single genre you can imagine of feminist ideas. Well, Kirsten, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge around the music scene. Where can people find out more about your work? Well, you can follow me at uh, on Twitter at Kirsten Jane, um, and that's probably the best way to keep keep updated with with what I'm doing. Amazing. Well, this has been fantastic, and for listeners, we will link to that in the show notes and transcript. Thank you so much. Thank you. After the interview, Kirsten mentioned another great resource for our listeners. And it comes from friend of the podcast, Vanessa Blaise Tremblay. It's the Dig Music Quebec Project. We link to this resource in the show notes and transcript. Thank you everyone for listening to our third episode. There are so many ways to connect to the topics of the feminist nexus. If you want more info on the Gaia's Guides or Gaia's Guides, I have an article called Say Hi from Gaia. I've included a link to the feminist media studies version in the transcript and show notes, 
But if you Google the title, the open access preprint version should pop up in case you get paywall trying to read it. For more information about Jack and Kirsten, please see the links in our show notes and transcript. For more information about feminist media communications networks, also check out the work of scholars such as Kate McKenney and their book, Information Activism, and Elizabeth Grunveld's Making Feminist Media. Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast, will continue next week. Please follow the podcast to be notified of new updates. All transcripts are available at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. My book, Ingredients for Revolution, A History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses, is coming out fall 2022 from Concordia University Press. You can receive 20% off pre-orders with the discount code CATCHEM20. I've included the link in the show notes and transcript. An open access version will be released a bit later. I'm filled with so much gratitude for being able to create this podcast. Thank you to my co-producer, Sadie Couture, for your editing assistance. Thank you to Sarah Nandy for proofreading the transcripts. Music by Tyler Antoine. Thank you to Shirk for the Insight Grant, which supports making my scholarship available in more accessible formats. And of course, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.